Back again. Podcast us, interrupt us. Happens a lot on my age. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I keep using the same jokes. But anyway, the good news is I can't hear that you're not laughing. I can't even hear you breathing. I don't know if you're out there. But our new circulation, our, we're up to five now. A fistful of fanciers, hopefully, of the Nugent Ventures seeking alpha podcasts. So I was on page six, like Paul Harvey, page six, uh, about how the Democrats can avoid disaster. Uh, there's a fellow named David Shore, and later on I'll mention that California passed a law where if you get people's pronouns wrong, you can go to jail. So the the speech police are starting to have uh, criminal law enforcement powers. I would think that should be limited to trial lawyers because then they can make a ton of money. You know, and Democrats love trial lawyers because they give money. Anyway, uh, yeah, they talk about corporate America, but the Democrats are like... uh, raking it in from trial lawyers. So there's a little bit of a conflict of interest. So David Shore is a 30-year-old data savant uh, who predicted he was an advisor to the Obama campaign, so he must have really been a young guy then, predicted the 2012 popular vote to within a tenth of a percentage point. But he's been terrifying Democratic donors and leaders with a nightmarish vision of their future. Not only are they likely to lose the House and Senate next year, uh, it could be a decade before they get it back due to mass defections of working-class voters without college educations, both white and non-white, so that includes the Latino vote to the Republican Party. They are concentrated in low-population rural states that are overrepresented in the Senate. So Democrats could win 51% of the popular vote in 2024 and get only 43 Senate seats. Uh, Their last best chance to avoid the abyss, he says, is to radically change how the party talks, acts, and thinks. So basically, they have to get a brain transplant, a heart transplant, and a personality transplant, rather than let young, white, college-educated progressives drive a culture war, cancel culture on race, immigration, social justice, and identity politics. Democrats should focus their messaging on worker-friendly bread-and-butter policies, such as child tax credits and lower prescription drug prices, which sounds a lot like Bernie Sanders, really. Uh, Heather Digby Parton, presumably no relation to Dolly, but you never know. Uh, This is old news. I mean, and this is, Clinton did this, triangulation. Uh, And centrist Democrats have been warning ever since that annihilation awaits unless the party muzzles progressives and starts pandering, quote-unquote, to some rural Iowa voter. And she thinks that's obviously, beneath them. Well, so be it. Shore's prescription for surrender, says Ellie Mistel of thenation.com, which is like makes Karl Marx look like a conservative. Uh, 
the, she claims that these deplorable whites without college educations are hostile to immigration and science. Does that mean that Democrats should embrace beating migrants and recommending ivermectin over vaccines? That's not what we're talking about here, although it's part of it, I guess. Uh, should they abandon black people? Should they mimic the GOP's whites first attitude, which is a straw man? All these are straw men in rhetorical terms, which they love to do. Only by unabashedly fighting for progressive principles and maximizing enthusiasm and turnout among black, brown, and white progressive voters can Democrats avoid political irrelevance. I actually think that's the perfect way for them to become politically irrelevant. So, you know, if you're a Republican, I think you would hope that Ellie gets a job as the the chief strategist for the party because she will lead them into the valley of death. It turns out that this country's more conservative than one might have feared, at least in my case, during the uh, civil unrest, quote-unquote, we had. Ian Ward, Politico, the Democrats' problem is one of class, not race. The party is dominated by privileged college kids who are far to the left of the median Democratic voter. The result, asinine, politically toxic calls to defund the police and end all border enforcement. Don't forget, says Ross Duhat, I think it's pronounced Duhat, in the New York Times. He used to be a Wall Street Journal writer. Don't forget about birthing people in Latinx. And as I said, in California, they're starting to make it a crime to use the wrong pronouns. These grad school coinages from the Great Awakening alarm real-world mothers and Latinos and Latinas. Until ongoing demographic changes give them a majority, Democrats can buy crucial time by just denouncing the excesses of the progressive clerisy. Fat chance of that because they don't want to get primaried, right? But the reality is you cannot irritate people into liking you, and you cannot irritate people into buying from you in business, and you can't irritate people into voting for you. I wonder sometimes, you know, what's the agenda here? Why? What's the strategy with making, you know, people who look like me uh, feel bad? Is it to demoralize them? Is it to pressure them to make concessions, or is it just without any point at all? I don't know what their agenda is, really. I've always thought it was, you know, you deconstruct the old culture to replace it with the new socialist culture. But obviously America ain't ready for that kind of, quote, reform, unquote. David Dayen in Prospect.org says... The real problem is that when Democrats are in power, they can't get anything done, which we've seen recently. They just finally passed the one uh, infrastructure bill, which pretty much everybody agrees on. If they can't improve the lives of the white working class, broken promises and urban liberalism is all these voters see, and it kills the party brand. And both parties' brands are killed in my mind we need a new party which we'll get to now the guy i voted for for president kanye west now is just called yay y-e or ye yay i don't know two letters legally changed his name 
like Prince, you know. Um, bad week for Nigel's. No male babies were given the once popular name Nigel in 2020. Wow. That 15 were called Lucifer. So that goes to show you what's happened to the UK. That sums it up right there. My doctor's name is Nigel, by the way. He's of Indian descent. Now, Greta Thunberg is actually happy. She is uh, suffers from, uh, what is it? Jeez. Autism. She's autistic. So now that she's joined the climate movement, she was depressed, then she joined the climate movement, and now she has a purpose and she has friends. And she finds that being part of a community has made her very happy. It's nice to be popular. She really sees the value of friendship. Apart from the climate, almost nothing else matters. So I think maybe that's what happens to some of these you know, crusaders. I consider her to be the, the Joan of Arc. She's 18 now. Uh, she started at 11, I think, and got depressed, and then she got to be the Jonah Bark of climate change. So she's still in her teens, but, you know, and a child shall lead them. So we'll see if she mellows out. Now, here's the favorite subject these days, a third party to cleanse the GOP by Jonah Goldberg, L.A. Times. I believe he's the... Uh, libertarian. Traditional conservatives should consider launching a new party. We need an alternative. The best option may be a breakaway party that would support Republicans who hold true conservative principles. If you abandon conservative principles, says he to the Republican Party, conservatives might abandon you. And I would wrap Joe Manchin into that and maybe even Kristen Sinema. You know, common sense. Joe Biden probably be in that party if he has any principles. I don't know. But I think he's pretty middle of the road in his heart of hearts. Now, Michael Lewis writes, A term like birthing people may be good for a laugh, but not for those on the front lines of the identity movement. A California law, Senate Bill 219, would have punished nursing home employees with up to a year in jail for repeated use of the wrong pronouns, a practice known as misgendering. And that miss is probably needs to be some other word, because that's like miss and misses. You know, it should be misgendering or something. I don't know. Such terms emerge from the world of identity politics, the militant branch of the contemporary American left. There are words you, you may never say, and there are words you must always say, and a single misstep can bring serious, even career-ending, or even criminal consequences. Talk about the language, please, and the thought, please. That's the kind of stuff that drives people away from the Democratic Party. And for what? Well... Now we get back to the cover story, The Great Resignation. Average restaurant and supermarket workers' wages recently surpassed $15 an hour. 
So the fight for 15 has been won over the dead bodies of 700 plus thousand Americans in the COVID crisis. Who could have, who would have thunk of that, right? This could be a pivot point. Remember that pivot point mentioned in the introduction. In our economy, said Paul Waldman in the Washington Post. And you will recall that Republicans criticized the enhanced unemployment benefits and COVID relief bills on the grounds they would make Americans lazy and unwilling to work. And the data does not support that notion yet. However, I do think, I talked to a guy yesterday or the day before, he said he was on furlough from his job, and he was like, hey, still collecting a paycheck. So I enjoyed my furlough. Now, if he wasn't getting that, he might have found something productive to do, you know. Not that this guy's a hard worker, too. Harder than me. Now, Paul Krugman weighs in. Uh, The Great Resignation says he is about something much bigger than money. American workers are insisting on a better deal. And he thinks it's in the nation's interest that they get it. And like I said, you know, I have pretty much, you know, peered into that low-wage world here lately. And I I don't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, companies have kind of gotten obsessed. Like the turnover for these truck drivers is like 90%. That's not even good business. You know, recruiting and training people. And then the safety issues, it's gotten, the pendulum has swung too far in that regard, I think. That's just, you know, you you make a fetish out of paying people poorly. So, hell, I pay my people more than that. The racial gap in vaccination status has nearly disappeared. Thanks to intensive public education and outreach efforts, so says Kaiser Family Foundation, 70% of black, 73% of Hispanic, and 71% of white are now, uh, are now have received at least one shot of vaccination, or one dose. On the green front, heating bills could jump as much as 54% this winter. That's according to the government. So this, you know, climate change may be... I saw a thing on the on YouTube from The Economist about the disaster that happens if the global warming gets to be three degrees from where it was prior to the Industrial Revolution, which who knows if it's going to or not. But they ended it by saying, well, you know, if you build seawalls and you do this and you do that, then you can manage it. Well, that's probably what we need to do. You know, it was like three degrees of uh, devastation. I was going to put a post out on social, but I couldn't pull it off. You know, like six degrees of separation. But I was going to say, if you listen to the end of it, it may just be three degrees of mitigation, not devastation. If we, you know, that's what the infrastructure bill is supposed to do, right? So now here's a stat in an otherwise not too interesting article. Only 11% of Republicans trust the media. So there you go. And I mean, most of the media, 
Some of the media is like conservative propaganda, but the rest of it's all liberal propaganda. So I, I, I am. I don't really trust anything I see on broadcast media. I find more truth and wisdom in print. And here, speaking of wisdom, wit and wisdom. There is nothing quite so tragic as a young cynic because it means the person has gone from knowing nothing to believing nothing. That's Maya Angelou. Yogi Berra says, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up someplace else. I wonder if he just deliberately did these malapropisms. Sigmund Freud says, it is precisely the minor differences in people who are otherwise alike that form the basis of feelings of hostility between them. And my principal sparring partner on social now is a guy I went to high school with uh, and grew up on the south side with, obviously. He was on the east side. And I'm like, you should know better than this. But some of the other, you know... Bernie bros and sisses I don't bother with, you know, because they figure, forgive them, they know not what they do. But this guy, he knows better than that. George Eliot said, it's never too late to become what you might have been, which is true. In my case, I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, and I guess now I've grown up. Wealth is like seawater. The more we have, the thirstier we become. And the same is true of fame, said Arthur Schopenhauer, the composer, I believe. C.S. Lewis, those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. I found that to be true. Now, more poll data. 32% of women in the U.S. think men and women have equal job opportunities. That's the lowest in two decades. 61% of men say women do have equal job opportunities, which is weird. I can't imagine, you know, to me, it's a disadvantage right now for me to be a man, particularly white, old man, but, you know. So it's amazing. The grass always looks greener on the other side of the hill, I guess. 51% of Republicans say the worst of the pandemic is now behind us compared to 43% of Democrats and 34% of independents. Well, I think it is. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious, frankly. We had 600,000 deaths under Trump, basically, and 100,000 since Biden. And it's all about the vaccine, right? Which Trump developed which was developed under Trump, let's put it that way. Now, here's something I think is a good idea. Um, Electric buses. You know, I can't imagine why this infrastructure bill wouldn't convert all the public transportation to electric. I mean, some of it is already the L, right? Uh, You know, Amtrak... I don't know if they could do it with Amtrak. Shorter runs they could. And, uh, well, yeah, they could. They could just put electrified, uh, like the old-fashioned IC train, right? And uh, buses, you know, military vehicles. I don't know why they don't go there. Turns out a lot of people are like me with the advanced tech features in their new cars. I have no idea how to work this stuff, and I even took my wife 
and we went to a class, and they tried to show us, and I still don't know how to work it. I wonder how many accidents happen when people are trying to work all these things. One thing that is notable, if you, daily aspirin may do more harm than good. That's always been sort of a debatable thing, but a new study, new guidelines published. Yeah, let's see. What exactly is the source of this? Oh, an influential medical task force plans to stop recommending it. It's the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So I did that for a while, but I quit because I saw, you know, there was doubt, and I'm not going to go back, obviously. So if you've been taking an aspirin every day, stop. That's my advice. Because aspirin makes you bleed out, you know. It's like a blood thinner. And it can prevent clotting and supposedly strokes and heart attacks, but on the other hand, you can end up with gastrointestinal bleeds. That's the trade-off. Now, here's a study that I've seen and has been thrown in my face on social. Uh, and it's studied by the Federal Reserve, it says the wealthiest 10% of Americans now own 89% of all U.S. stocks held by households. Oh, that's the key, right? Because a lot of stock is held, you know, by mutual funds and such. So that is a big difference. That's the flaw in that. Because a lot of people own ETFs or whatever, right? Uh, and they own it in a retirement plan. The top 1% gained more than $6.5 trillion in corporate equity and mutual fund wealth. Well, that does include mutual funds. While the bottom 98 at $1.2 trillion. Yeah, yeah. Still, that's $1.2 trillion. Well, that's nothing in Washington. That's one stimulus bill, right? The other thing you need to remember about stimulus bills is they're over 10 years. So if they say $1.7 trillion, it's really $170 billion a year. That's how I'd sell it. Uh, Bank of America cut off 450,000 California unemployment benefit cards over fraud suspicions at the state's request, 1,700 from one address. So if you think there's no fraud, waste, or abuse in government programs, think again. Now, speaking of rich people, Harvard's endowment fund, and this is probably part of that one, I don't know if that's part of the one, how did they define the 1%? Is it Harvard's endowment? Because they got a 34% return on their investments in fiscal 2021, raising their endowment to $53 billion plus an increase of $11 billion. And they distributed $2 billion toward the school's operating budget. So they could certainly offer free tuition to preferably just the deserving inflation is rising and Ed Kilgore contrasts this with the 70s and they're trying to compare Joe to Jimmy Carter and I think this is kind of a 70s redux but uh, back then and most of my listeners will remember inflation was 13.3 percent 
Interest rates were 11%, and then they jumped to 20 in 1980, the last year of Carter's presidency. We're at less than 1% now. Paul Krugman is no longer as certain that inflation is transitory, but still opposes raising interest rates and slowing down the economy. I'll let you know where the left is on that. They are cutting back on what they call quantitative easing, which is buying bonds and such. But I don't know that they plan to, I don't know what they plan to do with interest rates, but Paul's against it. People are starting to get uh, spooked. I don't know if you can still say that. I guess you can. By higher prices. Early signs of wage price spirals are evident. They're paying 12 bucks an hour at the taco franchise in Wichita, and a local restaurant just posted 20 bucks an hour for a hostess. So, you know, the invisible hand is giving people a raise. Now, here's from The Economist. Clean energy won't come without cost. The first big energy scare of the green era is unfolding, and we're clearly not prepared for it. Crude oil prices have topped 80 bucks a barrel. Britain has turned its coal-fired power stations back on to handle a crippling natural gas shortage. Blackouts have engulfed China and India. The current shock should be a wake-up call that modern life needs abundant energy. Without it, bills become unaffordable, homes freeze, and businesses stall. As Western countries head toward net-zero carbon, they have not made the investments they need either in renewables or in natural gas, not to mention nuclear power, which will have to bridge the transition. Fossil fuel production, meanwhile, is shifting increasingly to autocracies with fewer scruples, such as Russia. There are fewer and fewer safety buffers to prevent shortages and avoid the dangerous mismatches in supply and demand we are seeing today. Without rapid reforms, there will be more energy crises, which does sound like the Jimmy Carter administration, which could lead to a popular revolt against climate policies. The world's leaders need to move beyond pledges and tackle the fine print of how the transition will work. And I am not one who really, I'm kind of neutral about the source of energy. But what I do know is you can't prematurely put the kibosh on fossil fuel before you've got something to take its place. So what they should do is say, okay, we're going to ramp down the carbon thing, maybe by a carbon tax or whatever, as and only when we stand up the new sources of supply, you know, to the extent that the government can regulate that. So, you know, and I think they ought to start building nukes, you know. I've been through this on this podcast before. You know, if a nuke melts down, that's bad, but it could be worse, you know, if, if all this climate change Fear of mine green is anywhere near true. So, and one of the things the economist points out is there's going to be a lot of migration, you know, as coastal areas become uninhabitable and previously lush areas become deserts. So, um, 
you know, if you don't want all that stuff to happen, okay. But you don't want people to freeze to death. And then the, the average people will rise up against that if you make them freeze to death. You know, because even with global warming, we still have winter, kids. So anyway, that's it. Uh, uh, just over 30 minutes and two installments. So probably be back at you tomorrow with the trip. Take care. Bye-bye. Greetings, Alpha Seekers. <clears throat> Welcome to uh, the Sunday edition, which is the Sunday Trib edition. And it took me a while to get through the Sunday Trib today. As much as they've cut back and this Alden Media is supposed to be, you know, the destroyer of newspapers. I mean, you wouldn't know it unless you heard about it because there's still a lot of content in the paper. <clears throat> One thing I notice is that the journalistic, uh, local journalists, tend to focus on things that are very carefully selected to keep them uh, in good standing in the woke movement. For example, you know, the problems the city has, you rank them from one to infinity. And at the end of the list, I would say, is the uh, relations between people on some of the more popular radio talk shows. First of all, <clears throat> you know, who listens to that stuff anymore because uh, nobody's driving to work, right? Like Eric and Kathy and, you know, Jimmy DeCastro, who's been around radio for decades... So the Trib devotes its front page story to, you know, alleged hostile workplace issues between the women on the shows and the men, like Eric is in trouble, right? Is that really the biggest thing on the front page in this city? I mean, you know, maybe that should be in the entertainment section or something, or the media column, but... Front page story, but when you think about it, that's per, that's absolutely safe ground, you know, within a woke context because it's you know men persecuting women. Now, unfortunately, only one of the women I think in the article, Felicia Middlebrook, is black as well. The capital B, but you know, still sexism is a perfect thing to focus on if you want to establish your woke credentials. And, you know, I'm not defending that, but is that really the most important thing? Now, we'll start with the light stuff. What is wrong with the Blackhawks? They just fired this young guy that replaced uh, Coach Q. And, of course, Coach Q takes on a whole new meaning now, you know, within the context of this goofy sex scandal uh, that goes back like 11 years. He got fired. Uh, Scotty Bowman's out. You know, the the whole team seems to have collapsed. What happened here? You know, we had a, like an almost dynasty there for a while, and now the team is terrible, and you get this sleazy scandal going on. Man. <clears throat> Now, the good news about today's uh, agenda is the Bears are not on it. We don't have to watch the Bears. I, Brad Briggs says in the sports section, this is a must-win game for the Bears. 
how, how does how do you figure that? I mean, the bear season is already a lost cause, as is the whole power structure. You know, Pace and Nagy. I read an article that obviously their chances of being retained are like close to zero. So, you know, this is a lost season. You know, we're in the we're in year minus one for the rest of the Bears' history. You'll hear the crunching of paper as I throw these things away. Uh, what else is going on in sports? I usually don't cover sports, but um, the Illini won, beat Minnesota. That's news. What's going on with Alabama? They almost lost another game. Michigan State lost to Purdue. First loss. Notre Dame won, of course, against Navy. And Northwestern lost to Iowa, which is not surprising, I guess. So some strange things happening in the sports field. Here's a quote I like. Uh, Dick Dushiswa, who ran Arlington Park, uh, and is a World War II veteran, apparently, and this guy must be 100 years old. Oh, he literally is 100 years old. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it just goes to show you that betting on the ponies, especially when you're in the right end of it, is not bad for your longevity. He says, we have to teach people that war is not something... You just read about war changes nations, and it certainly does. It changes entire civilizations. I mean, in my mind, the two world wars are what got us where we are today in terms of the collapse of Western civilization and the rise of the East. For better or for worse. Now, here's a little tidbit. Hammaker Schlemmer is kind of like, you know, the, the yuppie 80s type of uh, company. And they make a, it's like a pool table, but it's a putting green. So instead of using cues, pool cues, you putt the balls. So for those of you who are golfers, you may want to pick one of those up and, you know, play pool and practice your putting at the same time. Why not? Now this is something that I pulled out the Greater Food, Greater Chicago Food Depository, which is probably a good cause. But uh, I note this, and this is more for my terrific writing podcast. But um, the QR code has finally found its place in the sun. You know, this is a print ad in Chicago Magazine, and there's a QR code so you can donate. And I see them on TV now. Like, you, I watch CNBC, as you know, so you don't have to. And uh, they will throw a QR code up on the TV screen, and you just focus your camera on it, and boom, you're connected to the web page. So this has gotten some power. And I think the big innovation was that the camera in my iPhone is now a QR code reader, which wasn't the case. You used to need a separate app. So advancements in marketing technology. Let's see, big, big noise in the uh, climate area. Let's see, why did I clip this one out? Um, 
I gotta read this. Three science-backed ways to sharpen your mental focus. I mean, I am an old man. I'm 67, and yet I'm still humping away. So, it's kind of challenging. You know, first the challenge is to get the work as a writer now. And secondly, the challenge is to get the writing done, you know. So, they suggest, and I haven't read this in detail, but one is stop multitasking. Two is practice brain breaks, and I don't know what a brain break is. I'm good at this, though. Uh, stop what you're doing. Take a breath. Oh, S-T-O-P is the acronym. Stop what you're doing. Take a breath. Observe what is happening within you and around you, which sounds like a George Harrison lyric. And P, proceed. Okay. <clears throat> And exercise your attention with a mindfulness routine, which that's a four-step process, apparently. One is focus, two is notice, three is redirect, four is repeat. So we'll hang on to that, I mean. Honestly, that sounds like something that's in the department of, I ain't gonna do that, but. Now, uh, New York elected a black mayor and the Associated Press, Michelle Price, is trumpeting this as a new peak of black power. Well, the guy they elected is an ex-police captain, so I look at that more as a law and order story. Not that black power is necessarily not law and order, but just again shows you the tenor of the times in terms of journalism these days. Uh, there's another article here which I didn't frankly read. The economy, it's the economy, stupid, you may recall, from the Clinton era. <clears throat> and it's been kind of, you know, there's one wing of the Democrats that's still in that camp, and that's the one that just passed this uh, this infrastructure bill. Too late for Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, if it would have made a difference. Um, but what they're saying, there's another wing, of course, that, you know, they want to redistribute what we already have rather than grow uh, the pie for everybody. And that's the tension here between the two wings. Americans have turned pessimistic about the economy as inflation has persisted. So, you know, on one hand, Joe's saying he's not getting credit for the economics. On the other hand, he's saying the economy's bad and we have to provide you know, billion, trillions of dollars of stimulus. And Joe's good at talking out of both sides of his mouth, <clears throat> but I don't know that that isn't a absolutely contradictory message, right? If things are so good, why do we need stimulus? And if they aren't so good, how can you claim credit? I don't know. The economy has actually slowed. It was booming. I think it, basically it's a pandemic economy. It was booming. And a couple of things going on. One is that <clears throat> the shutdown has kind of come back because of Delta. And that's kind of put a monkey wrench into the works. The other thing is that the supply chain crisis is really having a negative impact on sales because you just don't have the inventory. So when you shut down the entire world economy and then you try to you know, turn it back on. It doesn't just reboot like your laptop, right? 
So two things going on there. I think both of them will resolve, and the market seems to agree because the market keeps rising, and uh, that's a good thing, I guess. Now here's a good way to raise revenue for the county. Uh, the county has passed a guns and ammo tax. So it, they had one and then it got knocked down uh, by the courts, I guess. And now they've got it back again. I mean, I don't even know, I haven't read the detail here, but I thought this was illegal to buy a gun in this town, in this county. $25 tax on gun purchases in Cook County. I guess it's legal to buy them. And then I guess you can buy ammunition. So, I mean, this is an old Chris Rock idea, you know. Now, on the other side of the gun safety coin, retired CFD captain fatally shoots would-be robber. 77-year-old <laughs> dude with a concealed carry. And, you know, this is what's going to happen. If, if the cops can't defend you from the criminals and the, the county won't put them in jail, then people are going to start taking self-defense into their own hands, and that may end up discouraging crime. If, if you try to rob a guy and he shoots you, you may be less inclined to rob other people. Now, on the other hand, this particular guy, if I were him, I would move because they will be back for him, I bet. This was in the 500 block of East 89th, so right near the Dan Ryan. But that just goes to show you, too, you know, there are some great Americans living in those areas. You know, first responders in this case. Now, Rex Hupke devotes his column to uh, the horrible crisis of men in Chicago behaving loudishly. Clearly, if we could only solve that, the city would be safe, right? Um, now, Steve Chapman, I haven't read this column, but the headline speaks, allowing religious exemptions from COVID-19 vaccines is a mistake. I agree with that, but, you know, you've got this... I mean, I don't know the laws on that and the, the legal framework, but, you know, you got Christian science. I mean, you've got conscientious objection from the draft, which, of course, we don't have anymore. But, I mean, frankly, I think that this OSHA regulation, which I've been writing about professionally, that requires any federal contractor, which is basically every country in the United States, or every company, big company at least, to either... You either have to get the vaccination, your employees do, or they have to get tested once a week and they have to wear a mask. Now, the only flaw in that is I am still not particularly clear on whether or not if I'm a carrier as a vaccinated person or not. So I've been triple vaxxed. I've been double vaxxed with, with uh, Pfizer-BioNTech and I've been uh, boosted with Moderna, so I feel pretty bulletproof. But that doesn't mean, as far as I understand it, at least, and I'm certainly not a clinical a clinician, uh, I could still be a carrier. So shouldn't people who are vaxxed still be required to wear a mask inside? I think so. And, you know, I read this rule because I had to write an article about it. It's really not that bad. But, like, 19 states sued and... Uh, one of the circuit courts, the one based in New Orleans, which is obviously 
kind of conservative, uh, put a stay on it and it'll get expedited. But it's not supposed to take effect really until January 4th. So uh, there's time to litigate it. But if I was running a business, I'd probably prepare as if. But it's also for those of you who, and I know at least one of you is actually in a position where you have to know about this stuff. If you've got under employees, it doesn't apply. So it's not that draconian, as far as I'm concerned. Now there's an article in Parade about Nora O'Donnell, who's an Army brat. And her dad is a physician in the uh, Army, and her sister is a physician... I don't know if it's the Army or the Navy, but some branch of the service. But that is worth reading. Um, and she talks about, you know, what she learned, which is personal responsibility. And I think that's what cuts across. You know, they just had the big uh, memorial for Colin Powell. And this is a guy who strongly believed in personal responsibility. So... The, the woke thought that just because you are of a particular pigmentation that has had struggles in America and elsewhere, that you can't be held responsible for your behavior, I don't buy that. <clears throat> I don't think that's good for anybody, including people who, are, who have pigmentation. Now, the... Uh, Tribune is cut down to like two opinion pages, one of which is the editorial page. And uh, their lead editorial, Member of Democrats in the wake of the pandemic, only American optimists will win. And I have not read this in detail, but I think that ties in with a couple of letters to the editor. Uh, one is from a Democrat, obviously, from Woodstock, and uh, he says, some, someone somewhere has started writing a book with the title, How Two Democratic Senators and 95 Progressives Brought Down Their Own Democratic President in 2024 and Turned the House and Senate Over to the Republicans in the Midterms. And another writer, Kenneth Olson, from, I can't quite read this. Val Prezi. President Joe Biden claims he heard what Americans had to say in Tuesday's elections. He said people want us to get things done. The writer argues, what the American people actually want is cut it out, stop doing what you're doing, and reverse course immediately. You'd better separate yourself from Bernie Sanders' economic ideas and the squad's social agenda, or your party will get squashed in the midterm. And I think that's true. <clears throat> I've said that before, so I won't bother to say it again. And then there's an editorial cartoon, which I usually don't try to capture, but this is uh, Scott I 
it's Scott DeSantis and it's they picked it up from the Pittsburgh Gazette so so that it shows a family a nuclear family of three and a democratic caricature with a donkey head says America is systematically racist sexist homophobic patriarchal exploitative oppressive and toxic to the environment and the couple turns around and says we'll probably vote Republican and then the Democratic avatar says oh is it something I said <laughs> yeah. yeah so this is Steve Kelly actually, is the cartoon and I mean you know, I, I start to wonder, what's the point of this browbeating, you know? So we move on from that. Uh, there's an article about how you can get affordable health insurance, which I'm going to share with one of my staff. What else do we have of note? Frustrated activists demand action as climate talks drag on. Now, I talked about Greta Thunberg, the Joan of Arc of the climate movement, and she has uh, condensed the talks to just more blah, 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 which reminds me of an old Star Trek episode about the, the grown-ups versus the kids. And, you know, it's like, really? And then another activist says, we're having these conversations, but there's no policies to actually back them. And on top of that, the real people should be in the room. Well, maybe. But the real people elected the people who are in the room, I hope at least. I don't know who's in that room. It's a very easy thing for them to ignore. They're nice and comfortable inside the Summit Conference Center. It's a two-week summit. Now, does it really take two weeks to figure this stuff out? I, I, I bet there's more hot air being released there than most spots on the planet. So these idealistic types are starting to get an education and what really happens when the sausage gets made. And these people are, you know, blah, blah, blah means what happens if we, you know, turn off all the, uh, the gas and, and coal-driven power? People start freezing, the lights go out. What's going to happen then? You know, it's not easy to do this stuff. Assuming that you think it's worth doing, even, which I guess a lot of these folks obviously do. So, that's the 22-minute mark, and now we move to Chicago Magazine, which is in there, I think, once a month. And is, you know, this is, again, the woke journalism. I mean, 90% of these articles are, you know, wokeatorials. And one of them is, well, let's start with some of the facts, and this is in like real small type and like a half a, a quarter of a, an eighth of a page column. Chicago is on a pace for the most murders since 1996 when 792 were killed. 
business is noticing. Mayor Lori Lightfoot heard safety concerns from San Francisco high-tech companies when she went out there to recruit them, and the only thing Chicago has going for it vis-a-vis -vis San Francisco is San Francisco's even worse. I mean, San Francisco's like one open-air toilet these days. Citadel CEO Ken Griffin <clears throat> compared the city to Afghanistan and said he may move his company to, of all places, New York. When New York sounds better than Chicago, you know you've got a problem. Maybe less bad than San Francisco, but, um, you know, <laughs> worse than New York. Chicago police officers, and this may not be a coincidence, Chicago police officers are retiring in record numbers, 367 in the first half of this year. To replace them, the department is holding entrance exams, and I bet they'll have trouble recruiting for that. Now, there's a band here, Material Issue, my cousin, and I can't remember his name, sadly, but he was like the leader of that band. And he unfortunately succumbed to suicide. So uh, the doc, there's a documentary called Out of Time, The Material Issues Story. And on December 2nd, they're going to have a reunion concert at Lincoln Hall, which is right down the street. So I don't have a very good excuse for not going to that, except sloth. And perhaps some concern over my health. Now... Uh, another deadly serious story about the loop. This is my work in the senses paying off. Uh, the loop is the fastest growing part of Chicago, and Englewood is the incredible shrinking part of Chicago. Uh, Englewood lost 20% of its people. In 1970, Englewood had... 20 times as many people as the loop, almost 90,000 versus 5,000. In the last U.S. census, the loop was twice as populous as Englewood, 42,000 versus 34,000. So Englewood has lost um, almost 70,000 people since 1970. So these neighborhoods are going to, for all practical purposes, disappear. So what's going on is new luxury housing and getting rid of affordable two-flats. A thousand new construction permits in the loop and 900 demolition permits in Englewood. So they're just tearing these buildings down. You know, nobody wants to live there. Nobody wants to pay for it. So it's going to be one big vacant lot. The least educated residents, people with blue-collar jobs, are going to other states. The city will become wealthier and whiter, oh no, and will continue to lose black population and Latinos to the suburbs. Because if you can't maintain any law and order, then people who are law-abiding people are going to leave. That's what happens. Now, there's a woman they quote in here named Cecilia Brown, and she runs, she works for the Chicago Public Schools. She says there was no crime uh, in the 70s. Well, 
I don't think that's exactly right, but maybe less. Uh, the loop's median household income is over is almost one hundred ten thousand. Average household size one point six. Eighty two percent of residents bachelor's degree. And obviously, if you compare that to Englewood, wouldn't compare favorably. But they say the rental prices downtown have uh, returned to pre-pandemic levels, which is encouraging. But remember who established the loop tax increment financing regimen? It was established by Harold Washington to redevelop Block 37. Now, two-bed, one-bedroom rentals go for uh, $2,400 a month in the loop. Now they're talking about why this has happened and tearing down the projects pushed gang activity into the neighborhoods, which I think is true. And I've heard that from local residents there during my census employment. The Englewood Police District had 66 homicides in 2020. Central District had five. Now, Jerwain Ballantyne operates Yo City Dog, a hot dog stand in a vacant lot at 63rd and Halstead. Englewood doesn't have, he says, Englewood doesn't have a population problem. It has a poverty problem. Any impoverished neighborhood, ICP, now it's going to be a little profanity here, but these are quotes. I know you people can take it. Um, I see poor people doing poor people shit. If you don't uplift the community, expect that. And, you know, the Residents Association of Greater Englewood bought an abandoned Leon's Barbecue for thirty-five grand, hoping to attract a new restaurant. And, I mean, if you can't make it with a barbecue joint in that area, you can't make it, period. You know, gots to have some cue. So, uh... The, by the way, the Residents Association of Greater Englewood translates into an acronym called RAGE. The author of the article says gentrification is unlikely for Englewood. Oh no, that's Pete Saunders, an urban planner. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, the divide is no longer between uh, north versus south, but lakefront versus inland, which means maybe there's some hope for South Shore. I don't know. You know, I thought there was until the civil unrest. And there's a quote in here from one of the people who's interviewed that says, anything can grow if you water it. Well, we'll see what happens, but I have a somewhat less optimistic view. Now, here's another, The Power of Black Excellence, which I normally probably wouldn't have read, but the title of the book is Energy Never Dies. Which is true, you know, in physics. Now, one of the quotes out of here, which I wouldn't have seen unless the title kind of got me. The Reverend Jesse Jackson popularized the phrase, I am somebody, but the author of the book, Ayana Contreras, takes readers back to the poem from which Jesse apparently <laughs> stole it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, the title of her book is Energy Never Dies, Afro-Optimism and Creativity in Chicago. The author is best known as a radio host, uh, 
and a DJ at CTA's 95th Street Red Line Station. I didn't know they had DJs on the uh, on the Dan Ryan, as we used to call it, the down the middle. So at least you got some entertainment. Now here's a story about a physician, Emily Landon, who evidently got to be a media spokesperson for the COVID uh, regimen. And she says that uh, without taking drastic measures, the healthy and optimistic among us will doom the vulnerable. We have to fight this fire before it grows too high. I might have rewritten that. Landon admits she expected 2021 to be quieter than 2020. She says, I thought we'd have, I'm going to swear here, our shit together, but we don't. And looking back on the situation, we were never going to. A huge pandemic doesn't go away even in 12 months. All the historical evidence for this has been there the entire time. The politicization of common sense measures like masking and vaccination hasn't helped, that's for sure. Now, there's another interview here with Shaka Rawls, who is the uh, principal at Leo. And Leo High School has 221 students, or 220, I guess. They have a 100% graduation and college acceptance rate. He's instituted a science, technology, engineering, and math initiative. Uh, 94% of the students are black, 8% are Latino, zero are white, I guess. And uh, so Leo's changed a lot since my day. But I think this is a great guy, and I think he's running a great program. And he had a summer camp to keep these kids kind of in a bubble away from all the violence and stuff. Uh, they, they have a school billboard. In a time of social distancing, Leo is bringing people together to abolish and demolish the us-versus-them narrative between law enforcement and young black and brown men. Rawls set up a series of web conferences with his students and a stream of police and military officers, FBI agents, prosecutors, and judges. The floor was open. His hope was to bring these folks together. And he says, we all want to go home at night, right? So I think this is a great guy, and I continue to believe that the public, the, cat, the Catholic schools, and I don't know how Catholic the student body is, but Private schools in general and Catholic schools in particular may be one of the few solutions to this problem, to break folks out of that culture of crime and uh, despair and wokeness. I mean, this guy's teaching STEM. He's not teaching African-American studies or critical race theory, you know. And he's not talking about defunding the police. He's building bridges between the community and the police. Now, Joe Shanikin and Katie Tudin are local uh, club owners. They're trying to get funding to keep the arts community in business. Um, one of them owns 
Metro and Smart Bar and G-Man Tavern in Wrigleyville. And uh, the other one owns the Hideout, which I've never heard of, much less been to. But the clubs have survived. They found a thing called the Chicago Independent Venue League. They were afraid of Lincoln Yards Entertainment District, and then COVID happened. So you got to give them credit. So those of you who support the arts may want to Google that. <coughs> That's why I bring it up. Now there's an article about Jean Baptiste Point du Sable. Um, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that point right because he was more or less part of the French Empire. So, you know, there's been a de Sable High School for a long time since the 30s, and the, the city set that up as kind of a high school for the great migrants that came up and changed the uh, complexion of the city. And now, of course, Lakeshore Drive is technically JP, JBPD LSD, which I don't think many people are using in speech, at least, in the vernacular. So he came here and stayed for 20 years and traded with the native indigenous Americans, my, my relatives and my ancestors. He married a Potawatomi woman, uh, and his dad was a French enslaver, and his mom was a slave. So how do you figure that? And the author mentions the... So the author is trying to figure out how to deal with this guy because he's obviously complicated, as are we all. And um, I presume the author is black, capital B. And he says that, um, you know, you got to look at this in the perspective of the transition from the civil rights movement to the black power movement. I don't know why you have to do that, but, you know. We know that DeSable and his family stayed for 20 years and then left. And then John Kinsey came along and bought his trade station, and he's got streets named after him. But, you know, I have come to the conclusion, you can tend to get worked up about this stuff emotionally, I've come to the conclusion that I don't really care what they call the damn buildings. I mean, I worked in the Ralph Metcalf building on the census, and I bet 90% of the people didn't even know who Ralph Metcalf was, or Everett Dirksen for that matter. So, if people want to fight over the symbolism, let them. Now, here's a good example of what I think is a negative trend. Uh, there's a woman here, Lenise Antoine Shelley, who's a Haitian. And uh, she says, I know she's now director of a local theater company. The House Theater. She says, I know that had the pandemic and racial unrest not happened, she would not be the new artistic director. Because, and this is like, goes back to that original quote early in the cast about wars change countries. Well, what we've been through here with the civil unrest and the pandemic is 
kind of equivalent to a war in terms of how it's changed the country, at least for the moment. It has done things like this, and we'll tell the story. Uh, it was a boys' club, this outfit, which I never heard of, the House Theater. So there's a guy named Nathan Allen who founded it. And uh, the ensemble has been mostly white and male. 52 people, 48 white, 30 men. That means there were 30 men and 22 women, right? Well, that's not exactly a boys club. But only the men got the credit for the writing and all that. So, uh, amid the BLM movement, Allen released a statement, this is the old founder, apologizing for casting white actors as Asian and indigenous roles. Early plays. Well, they didn't have any... Didn't have any members who were like indigenous. I mean, I'm indigenous. You want to cast me? And excluding artists of color. Two months later, he, he resigned. He said, "You know, I'm done." So now they have anti-racism training available. People are asking for diversity in creative teams, diversity in administrative teams, and diversity on the board. This is imperative for me going forward. So, whose house is it now? It's our house. So, I think that, uh, and she says that she's changing the Snow Queen to be about, the Snow Queen is her latest production, which doesn't exactly sound diverse, but I don't know anything about it. Um, It's got puppetry, so the puppets maybe slap a coat of paint on, I don't know. But she's focusing it on the Snow Queen herself. Now, I would think that it would have been focused on the Snow Queen. but And Snow, of course, is regrettably white. So, I don't know. So, her changes are a way of heralding her leadership. The change of the culture from the boys' club to... I was going to say a club of everybody, but it's not a club at all. Just blow the walls open. Oh, all right, fine. I don't care. I never heard of it, and I'll probably never go to it. But I think the the object lesson here is if you're a woke person, then you got to understand that, you know, your position is in jeopardy, right? If you're woke and male and white, you know, don't think that you're going to be spared the axe. It's kind of like the people in Russia, the nobles who supported the revolution, and then found themselves getting, you know, it's like Dr. Zhivago. So if you want to do that, fine, but just, you know, be careful what you wish for. There's a certain self-loathing at work here. Now, here's a guy named Alexander Heman. Heman? I don't know. He's 57, and evidently there's going to be another Matrix movie, which I don't think we need. I think the first Matrix movie, and this is related to the otherverse, or the metaverse, uh, Matrix really was all about that, very prescient, as we say, far-sighted. And uh, so I loved the first movie, and the second and third were horrible. So the fourth one, I don't know. 
But anyway, this guy's a writer, and I'm a writer. So he says, I work nonstop, but long for laziness. For a situation in which I would get up in the morning and say, eh, I'm just not going to do anything, which is what I did in high school and college. Certainly what I did in college. So I trained myself to get up and go into the office, and every day I make something. And I may need to go into an office, frankly. You know, When the pandemic started, there was this great anxiety everyone was experiencing, but rather than paralyzing him, he became hypomanic, which is good, I guess. He finished up a novel he'd been done for 11 years. Um, he started writing poetry, making music. I didn't do that. Um, the compulsiveness that drives me comes from a need to avoid catastrophes. That's me. I thrive under risk. There's always this living within a simulated situation of danger that this novel, this story, this music track could come apart for whatever reason. And if it doesn't, there are these micro triumphs, a sense of agency. He's compared writing books to building cathedrals with toothpicks. You're glue, you glue them together one by one. It's tedious and endless. Now I'm tenured at Princeton, lucky him, so he never has to write again. But this obsessive tending to details is what I'm addicted to, choosing the right word in a 100,000-word novel, fully aware that people might not even notice that word at all. That's the toothpick. And that's somewhat true. I'm a much more modest uh, writer in terms of my scope and aspiration doing nonfiction for businesses. But, um, yeah, it's harder than it looks to write 500 words, trust me. He wrote a few pieces in the summer of sixty of 92 for a magazine that his friends were publishing in Bosnia. And I have a Bosnian guy working for me, so that's why I call that out. His roommate... He and his roommate lived in Edgewater, and now this is definite profanity alert. So he's biking to work along the lake, his roommate was, and somebody said, don't smile at me, motherfucker. Get off the bike path. <laughs> he considers that to be a great sentence. I consider that to be emblematic of Chicago, you know. It's not exactly the city of brotherly or sisterly love. And he was, he won the Lazarus, he won, his novel The Lazarus Project was nominated for a National Book Award, and he says he loved it, but he hated it because he wanted it, and he didn't want to want it, but he got it, so... You know, talk about first world problems, right? So finally, uh, you know, I was going to wrap this into the uh, climate article, but you remember the old soap opera, As the World Turns? Well, now, I literally heard this quote, you know, these people are talking and talking as the world burns. Well, okay, there's forest fires, but I think that's a little over the top, frankly. We'll see what happens. But. And then I saw another quote which said, people don't get what they deserve, they get what they negotiate. And that's so true. And I think when you start to look at disparities in income between particularly the genders, 
it may just be that men are more inclined to negotiate harder for salary. You know, I don't know. So anyway, that's it for the trip today. Uh, 50 minutes of your life you will never get back. I hope that spending them listening to me was uh, more entertaining or valuable than the alternative. Now, my alternative today is watching a Get Smart Marathon <laughs> on Decades TV, which is available on RCN. I don't know what else it's available on. We live in different television universes. But remember, I mean, back in the day, 257, 911, 2632 added, everybody watched the same show. We had common cultural references, and now we don't know. So, you know, you got your Hulu, I got my Roku. I don't even know how to watch TV anymore. I mean, that's one thing I did know how to do. But now, at these places we've been living in as gypsies, like, I don't know how to watch the TV. <clears throat> I don't ask for much of life. Anyway, live long, prosper, and we will talk to you again someday, hopefully soon. Bye-bye.